0: Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, "'Tis the Lord a wondrous story, "'Tis the Lord the King of glory, in a manger, as a little baby, and yet the Lord. In a manger, as a little baby, and yet the one of whom the six-winged seraph ceaselessly sing." Holy, 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 in a, in a manger as a little baby, but the one that we crown Lord of all. That's a, a wonder story, that's a wonderful story, and I, I think that because we've heard it so many times, we sing songs like Hark the Herald Angels Sing Angels, we, have heard we've, we sing these songs every year, and maybe we have grown so accustomed to this story that it ceases to be miraculous and wondrous. This morning, I want us to look at just two verses as we continue our study through John 17. God, in his sovereignty, ordained that these would be the verses that we'd be coming to. We studied verses 1 through 3 last week, and this week we are in verses 4 and 5. And they they perfectly bring back the wondrous element of the Christmas story. The wondrous element of this amazing story. As we enter these verses, we need to be reminded that the Bible is filled with application and implication. App- application, very clear commands given to us. You know, be, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That's something you can apply today. Do that today. Uh, clothe yourself with humility. Uh, submit yourself to God and to th- those around you. Take care of others. Love So many explicit commands that turn into application. But the majority of the Bible is implications, not explicit commands. The majority of the Bible is Stories. They're stories, they are accounts or even prayers, as we're going to be looking at this morning. And as such, they don't lead to a straight one for one do this. There's a command, so you need to do it, and how do we have to do this? Okay, do this. It's more of an implication. I personally think that's one of the reasons why people struggle with reading the Bible. They go to this book expecting to have God say to them, This is what you are to do. And then they get to the story of David and Goliath, and it just says there's a little boy who Throws a stone at a a giant. What am I supposed to do with that? There's no command. There's no clear-cut command that I need to now live out. Does it mean that smaller people should be beaten up on bigger people? Like, what is the clear-cut command? So you have to go back to the implication and see inside of the story what the implication, what the, the truths about who God is, the truths about who we are, and how to live in light of that. The reason I say this by way of reminder is these two verses have no explicit application. There's no explicit command. There are dozens of implications. We're going to look at just a a handful of these implications. But the greatest implication of these two verses is that they should lead us to awe, worship, wonder at the glory of Jesus. They lead us to awe, worship, and wonder as we stare at who Jesus is and what He has done. So, let's read these verses together. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him all authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given to him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Father, I I ask that you would enable us to see the wonder of these verses. God, I pray that A prayer that I pray every Sunday that my hearers would hear a better message than I preach because there is so much glory in these verses. I don't want any any of us to miss the glory here. Father, I pray that you would show us Christ that Holy Spirit, you would be pleased to point our eyes to Christ to fix our eyes on Him And to be blown away yet again at at who he is and at what he has done. God, may we listen to the work that Jesus did on our behalf as if we were hearing it for the very first time. And may we stand in awe and wonder and in worship at our amazing Savior. We pray it in his name for his glory. Amen. As we come to these verses, we have uh, studied, just uh, starting last Sunday to this Sunday, we've been studying the high priestly prayer. We're in the Upper Room Discourse. This is the prayer of Christ. and. And these verses finish out Jesus' prayer for himself. We can see he is praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. This is his prayer for himself. But then he's going to move on in verses 6 through 26 to pray for his followers. Verses 6 through 19 for his specific disciples. And then 20 through 26 for us, for you and for me, for all who would follow him. Last week we looked at the foundation of eternal life. That's the glory that Jesus is going to accomplish at the cross. We looked at the giving of eternal life. The Father draws and gives as a gift to the Son that the Son may give to all that the Father has given to Him eternal life. And we looked at the definition of eternal life. Eternal life is not so much a quantity of time because all people will live forever. Non-believers will live forever. It's less a quantity of time and more a quality of relationship that they may know you. And not in an intellectual sense because God the Father knows every single person that he has made. He knows everything there is to know about them. But he says on the last day in Matthew chapter 7, Depart from me, I never knew you in an intimate relationship, in a love relationship. Not knowing about, but knowing intimately. Eternal life is to know, to love, to cherish, to treasure God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So as we come to these verses in verse 4 and 5, we are going to stare at just two verses, two points. Very clearly, we're going to look in verse 4 at what Jesus has done, and verse 5 at who he is specifically. So as these verses lead us to worship, they are going to lead us to worship Jesus for number 1, verse 4, what he has done, and number 2, verse 5, who he is what he has done, and who he is. I don't know about you, but there are few things in this world more satisfying than a job well done. When you have a project and you have been working on that project for days, weeks, months, years, and you come to the end of whatever it is, and you sit down, and you realize it's finished. I did everything that I was supposed to do, and it's done. And I don't have to worry about that ever again. You can sit down, you can watch a movie, you can make hot chocolate, you can read a good book. You are done. It's finished. That's the sentiment that Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-8. through 8, As he's looking back on his life, he says, I have fought the good fight, I've run the race to its completion, I've kept the faith, I'm done, it's finished. But there's only one person who can say that they perfectly finished everything in completion, in its entirety, without failure. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he says here. In verse 4, he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. So let's look at number one, what Jesus has done. We are going to worship Jesus for what he has done. Verse 4, what has he done? He glorified the Father specifically by having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. You can see having, we we have a participle modifying what Jesus is talking about. I did this, I glorified you. How did you glorify the Father? By accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. Very, very clear, very simple, very obvious. Up until this present moment, Jesus had glorified the Father by obediently carrying out everything the Father told him to do. Only one final, ultimate act needed to be finished, and that's the cross. Now, obviously, there's a a bunch, there's a myriad of little things, little acts of obedience. Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and after this high priestly prayer, he's going to pray, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? If there is, can this cup pass from me? And then he's going to say, not my will, yours be done. So he still has many moments of obedience left to live out. But as far as the big acts are concerned, there's one final act, and that is going to the cross, submitting himself to the wrath of God in place of sinners. And Jesus is so committed to obeying his Father in that specific act that you'll see he says he has already accomplished it. I accomplished all that you've given me to do. He has not yet gone to the cross, but he speaks about the cross as if it were a past tense thing because it's as good as done. This is one of my favorite tenses in the Greek. This is the proleptic aorist, and you don't need to know that, but you need to know it, it has the coolest uh, form of speaking. It would be as if I said, hi, my name is Patrick Carmichael, I, I, I'm a pastor of Christ Bible Church, and um, you know, I retired when I was 72, and, and, uh, and I just keep talking, wait, wait, time out, you're, you're not 72, you haven't retired, what are you talking about? Well, it's as good as done. I, I, I know that I'm going to get to a place where that's going to happen. It's probably going to be more like 92 now, but um, I, it's going to happen. It's as good as done. That's what Jesus is saying. Paul uses this in Romans chapter 8. You remember he says those that Christ has justified, he's called, he's justified, and he has glorified. You and I are not glorified. We're waiting for that day that we get to be in heaven with Christ. But Paul says, since Jesus started it, it's as good as done. It's going to finish. He who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. So it's as good as done already. And he speaks of an act that will happen in the past tense as if it's already happened. That's what Jesus is doing here. I glorified you on the earth. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And I have accomplished the work which you have given to me to do. There's one final act that still has to be done, but it's as good as done in Jesus' mind. Why? Because John 4, verse 34, just write that passage down. One of my favorite verses in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, It is my food to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's my food. Um, what, What is food to us? Food is a necessity, it's a craving. This is what I love, and I need to do it. And it's also energizing. You think about the work that God has given us to do, you think about the work that God gave to Jesus to do, it's exhausting work, and yet Jesus says, doing it energizes me. Eating the food energizes me to do that work, that is the work. How can we define the work? When Jesus says, I have accomplished, literally it's, I have finished, this is the exact same form of the word that we're going to see when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, it is accomplished. What is the work that the Father gave to Jesus to do that he has accomplished? What is the work? I I would give it to you in two, uh, two main points. There are two main aspects of the work that Jesus did on our behalf. The first aspect is this. God the Father gave him an obedience to win for us. Jesus was winning our obedience. He was living the life that you and I needed to live in perfection and won for us an obedient record, a holy, perfect record of righteousness that He would then give to us into our account. I I find it so interesting. If you think about the gospel records, you think about how much ink is spilled on the life of Christ. We obviously see much written about when He was a baby. So let's say that's year one. One year, it's less than a year, obviously, because it's just when he was a baby and then a spotlight of when the wise men came, probably when he was two or three, a little bit older. But we have a spotlight of when he was a baby. And then you fast forward, and then the next time that we see him is when he's 12 in the temple. And it's just a spotlight. But let's say we have a year for when he's a baby, a year for uh, when he's 12 years old. Again, it's only one little tiny moment of when he's 12, but let's say it's a year. We'll, We'll give it a whole year. And then we have his public ministry. He was probably in his 30s. If we just say 30 to 33 years old, that's four years recorded. So if we add all this up, we have six years, and that's a generous allotment of time, right? We have six years. We have 30, 31, 32, 33 given to the records in the Gospels. And we'll give a whole year to him being a baby and a whole year to him being 12 years old. Six out of 33 years. It's 18% of Jesus' life is given to us in the gospel records. 81, 81.5, 18.5, 81.5% of Jesus' life is missing. What happened? What happened between 1 and 12? What happened between 12 and 30? What was going on? Was it so boring that nothing needed to be written? Was it pointless? Was there no point to it at all? So we're just highlighting the most important aspects. No, I actually think some of the most amazing things are happening in the places in Scripture where there's no record. In the 81% that we do not see about the life of our Savior, what He is doing is very simply winning for us a perfect, obedient record. He's living a perfect life. And it might seem boring, and this is what I love to turn to. You you hear uh, many preachers, many pastors, you even read books where there's a call to be radical, do radical things. And I love it, and I think that there's an aspect where it's a, a pendulum swing to the other side, you know, don't be a lazy Christian, do something for God. But that can be overstated when radical has to equal something out of the norm, something completely contrary to what we would normally do in everyday life. You have to move to India and share the gospel, and then you have to move to Africa and share the gospel, and then you have to just keep moving all over the place. You have to do crazy things. Sell your home. Give all money that you make from that, uh, sell to to somebody else. Give away everything that you have. Do crazy, radical things. Now, I agree that the love of Christ compels us to do crazy, radical things. Absolutely. But 81% of our Savior's life was so, quote-unquote, boring, it's not even in our Bibles and yet it was the most radical thing possible because he's winning for us an obedient record so that he can give that to us when he dies don't let anyone tell you that loving Christ working as hard as you can at your job being a part of fellowship and sharing the gospel on a regular basis in your community where God has planted you don't let anybody tell you that that's boring or unradical your savior did it And we should follow in his footsteps. The work that was given to Christ was to win our obedience for us. And the second aspect of the work that God the Father gave to the Son is to bear our punishment. To bear our punishment. This is what Jesus is going to say in the garden. Let the cup pass me by, the cup of the wrath of God. This is the only way that sinners can be saved because we cannot bear that penalty and live. The penalty is eternal separation from God forever in hell where only God's wrath abides. Jesus won for us perfect obedience and then he took our record of perfect disobedience upon himself and was punished as if he had lived our sinful lives. We talk about this in theology as double imputation. To impute something is to credit into an account what Jesus did was he took his record of holiness and he credits that into our account. And he takes our record of unholiness, of disobedience, and he pulls it into his account and is treated as such. So that we can be treated by the Father as if we are perfectly holy. The same words that the Father says to his son three times on, uh, on the earth in Jesus' perfect, perfect ministry. This is my beloved son. In whom I'm well pleased. I love my son, and he makes me glad. Those same words the father says about you, because you're seen in the holiness of Christ. He works on our behalf. Our beloved friend, dear brother, I believe the Martin Luther of our of our age, um, Dr. R. C. Sproul went to be with the Lord on Thursday, and I. I was thinking about him and thanking the Lord for his impact even on my own life and thinking about some of my favorite statements, favorite books, favorite statements, favorite quotes. R.C. Sproul said this, the grounds of your justification are the perfect works of Jesus Christ. We are saved by works. We are saved by works. But then he says, but they are not our own. We're saved by the works of Jesus. So when Jesus says, Father, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do, we need to see our salvation written in that sentence. The work that you gave me to do is to win a perfect record of righteousness, to be able to give that to sinners, to justify them, and to take their sin on my shoulders and bear their penalty so that they can be forgiven. Legally guilty people can only be Made innocent if they're declared righteous. You can't work off that that legally guilty standing. Spiritually dead people need Jesus to give them new life. And that's what he does. He has accomplished the work. And we need to worship him. You can see it even in the beginning. I glorified you. Jesus' works reveal God's glory because it's revealing God's attributes. It's revealing his character and it's making his character known. So many aspects of God's character are seen perfectly at the cross. The sovereignty of God is displayed at the cross. Remember Acts chapter 2, the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, the perfect plan that God the Father set up to put his son onto a cross. The sovereignty of God is on display. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I'm going to lay it down and I'm going to take it back up in three days. The justice of God is seen at the cross. Sin must be punished. God the Father cannot grade on a curve and yet still be holy and perfect and just. He has to punish sin. And sin was punished at the cross. Righteousness is seen at the cross. Wisdom is seen at the cross. Love is seen at the cross. All of the attributes of who God is are are met at the cross in such a way that we can see the glory of God on display. So Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth in every aspect of doing your work. I accomplished the work. It's as good as done. Every aspect of it, I did it. You gave it to me to do, and I have accomplished it. And that leads us to worship Jesus for what he has done. But he doesn't end there. Verse 5, we're going to worship Jesus for who he is. Not only what he has accomplished, what he has done, the work that he has finished, but also worship Jesus for who he is. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting. You circle up the chairs and, you know, everybody's uh, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, hands are folded, even though, you know, our Savior has his eyes open looking up to heaven. We're doing the opposite. And we're praying and, and the prayer meeting has been going for an hour or so and, and then somebody prays something that's just a little off. I don't know if you guys have been in those meetings where you, you have your eyes closed and you're, you're yesing and amening along with them. Mm-hmm. Yes, amen. And then they say something, you kind of open one eye. Wait, what? I definitely can't say amen to that. And you kind of, you know, elbow somebody. What did they did, did I hear them correctly? I personally think that's exactly what the disciples are doing here. When Jesus prays verse 5, I think somebody goes, wait, excuse me, what? Pardon me? I think Peter, the whole time as Jesus is praying, this is eternal life. I want to glorify you. You gave me all authority. Peter's going, "Mm -hmm, amen, amen. And then Jesus says, now glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And I think Peter goes, time out. What, What are you saying? It's clear what he's saying. To put it in our terms, Jesus is saying this, I want it to be like it was before I came down and was born in a stable, laid in a manger and swaddling clothes. Father, I want it to be like it was before that. I want it to be like it was before that. Glorify me together with yourself. I glorified you. Now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. The incarnation, Jesus being born as a human entailed a forfeiture of glory. Jesus gave up glory. He forfeited glory when in humility he came down and was born as a human. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And everything that is in existence, everything that has been made was made by him. Nothing that we see that has been made was made apart from him making it. He is perfectly God. Very God, God, very God, truly God. And he says, the glory that I had before the world was created, I want that glory again. I've been humiliated for a time, and now I want to be glorified to be with you again. Before the world was. These are certain topics, just, if you think about them long enough, focus on them for long enough, your brain starts to hurt. And this is one of those topics. There was a time when nothing existed except for God, and God existed in eternity past forever. It's hard enough to to wrap your mind around eternity moving forward, but that one makes a little bit more sense. But there was a time when nothing existed except for God in three persons in the Trinity where they were We can't really answer because there was no where. There was no thing created. But they existed. A.W. Pink is my go-to guy when my brain starts to hurt. And he helps me on this. He says, before the world was, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, there was a time, if it could even be called a time, when God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three persons, dwelt all alone. There was no heaven where his glory was particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There's no angels to sing his praises. There's no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing and no one but God. And that, not for a day, not for a year, not even for an age, but from everlasting eternity. During a past eternity, God was all alone, self contained, self sufficient, in need of nothing. Had a universe or angels or humans been necessary to him in any way, they also would have been called into existence from all of eternity. But creating them when he did added nothing to God essentially. He changes not. Malachi chapter 3 Therefore, his essential glory can neither be augmented or diminished. Before the world was, Jesus said, I had glory. And yet he willingly gave up. He forfeited aspects of that. He did not forfeit any aspect of deity. He's fully God. He's God, very God. But he takes upon himself humanity. And in doing so, encloses himself. Takes upon limitations. He's God, very God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. You know this. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's God and he's man. 100% above God, very God. Man, very man. This is what happens at the transfiguration. He is man. You, you, You think as you're reading through the Gospels that the disciples would have figured out he's God. But they're constantly asking the question that we sang. Who is he? Who is he? We, we know he's God because he's only doing things that God can do, or at least a man sent by God can do. But then he's asleep, he's tired, he's hungry, he's a man. He grew up at Nazareth. He grew up around all these people that know him, that remember being with him, babysitting him. They, he's a man. Oh, but wait, he's God. At least he's a man sent from God. Well, no, he's totally God. Wait, but he's just a man. This constant tension, Paul says perfectly in Colossians 2.9, In him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And we see it played out at the the transfiguration. You remember when Jesus goes up on the mountain, takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he is transfigured, pulls back his humanity, as it were, and lets his glory shine through, the the glory of his deity shine through. So he clothes himself in humanity. It's not fake. It's not the, the Clark Kent, you know, put on glasses and I'm no longer Superman. It's real. He is truly Fully, very, very God and very Man. We see this in Philippians chapter two. Go ahead and turn there, just really quickly. Philippians chapter two, verse five. Philippians chapter two, verse five. We see Paul telling us that Jesus is God, very God. There's no doubt. Have this attitude in yourselves. This is Philippians chapter two, verse five which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, it's the, the morphe of God, everything that it means to be God, he was existing as God. But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Equality, the, the Greek word isos, where we get isosceles, triangle, equal in size, equal in parameters. There's no better way for Paul to say He looks like God, he acts like God because he is God. There's no better way for Paul to be able to explicitly, clearly say, Jesus is God. But notice what happens. Verse 7, he empties himself. He emptied himself. Now here, it would be easy to say he empties himself of glory. And yes, that's true, but we have to be careful because sometimes we equate that with deity. Somehow he emptied himself of deity. Jesus did not cease to be God or become less than the God that he was. Paul tells us how he emptied himself. It's very clear. Again, we have a participle. He emptied himself, and then we're going to have a participle, taking, that will modify how he empties himself. What did he give up? How did he give something up? Paul tells us very clearly, he gave something up by adding, by taking to himself the form of a bondservant, the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man. You see, Jesus did not empty himself by reducing or diminishing in any way. He emptied himself by adding something to himself. He never ceased to be God, but he added perfect humanity to himself with all of the limitations that humanity would include. That's why this word empty, it's the Greek word kenosis, and we have our kenosis definition. We've talked about this many times before. What did Jesus empty himself of? Well, technically and very literally here, he emptied himself by taking limitations, human limitations to himself, and being born as a human. What does that look like played out practically? The definition that we would give to it is that he emptied himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He has divine attributes because he's God. And he did not empty himself of divine attributes. If you were to sit in my Bible class and we go through this kenosis formula, this definition. If you ever put on one of my exams that Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes, you get a zero. Because he did not empty himself of any aspect of his deity or any divine attribute. But he emptied himself of independently using those on his own. He said, Father, I will wait upon you. I am fully God, but I'll wait upon you to allow me to be able to do what it is that you want me to do. Any aspect of my deity that I was able to use at free will when I was in heaven, now I give, Father, to you. Let me use it when you want me to use it. We see this all over the gospel records. John chapter 2, wedding at Cana. Mary says, would you please help us out here? And Jesus says, it's not my time. I think somewhere in that inter- interchange, Jesus says, Father, am I able to help my mom out? And the Father says, no, it's not your time yet. And Jesus says, it's not my time yet. I asked, it's not my time yet. And Mary says, you know what, whatever he says, listen to him. Do what he tells you to do. And then somewhere after that, the Father says, it's time. Go ahead. Go ahead. We see this clearly in the unpardonable sin. When Jesus says you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, he had just performed a miracle, and the Pharisees said he did the miracle by the power of Satan, and Jesus says you blasphemed the Holy Spirit, because he's the one who did that miracle, not me. He did the miracle. I have to wait upon the Father to allow me the power through the Spirit to do the miracle. You and I cannot perform miracles. We can't do that. We have to wait upon the Lord to do what he would allow us to do through his power, not our own. Jesus had to live inside of our limitations. This this makes the temptation of Jesus make all the sense in the world to me. You you know, Matthew chapter 4, three temptations. We know he was tempted more than just three times. But we have three explicit temptations that are given to us that Satan tempted Jesus with. The two of them make total sense morally Bow down and worship me, Satan says. Well, obviously that's immoral. Don't do that. We can't can't ever tell anybody that they should be doing that. Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple. Test God. Well, that's morally wrong. Don't test the Lord your God. But you remember the third one. You're hungry. You've been fasting. Just turn these rocks into bread. There's nothing immoral about doing that. There's absolutely nothing immoral about taking a rock and saying, bread. Nothing immoral. The reason why it's a temptation is because Jesus would not do that on his own power. Could he have? Absolutely. That's why it was a temptation. Satan is saying, Jesus, you are God. Step outside of the limitations that you've taken upon yourself. Just for this one time, step outside. And perform the miracle. You don't have to wait upon your Father. You don't have to rely on the power of the Spirit. You're God. You can do it. If Jesus had said, yes, I'll do that. I'm hungry. I can do that. I am God. Let me do this. He would have ceased to be perfectly human. And he would have failed in winning for us a perfect record of human obedience lived out in its totality. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, emptied himself, not of any form of his deity, not of any glory as far as who he was intrinsically, but he pulled limitations to himself. He emptied by taking, he emptied by adding, and he added human limitations. This is what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He had to partake of who we are in our substance to be our perfect substitute. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, God's omnipotence comes down to man's feebleness and infinite majesty stoops to man's infirmity. And then he says this, I love this quote, the infinite became an infant the infinite became an infant c.s lewis says god has landed on this enemy occupied planet in human form as a human so we sing christmas hymns let's say this Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies he who throned in height sublime sits amid the cherubim Sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine. Thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. So Jesus says in John chapter 17, we can go back there. Jesus says in John 17, I want the glory that I had with you before the world was. No limitations. Perfect exaltation. I want that glory. You know, God the Father answers that prayer with a yes. God the Father answers that prayer once. Jesus performs the work that he does on the cross, is buried, is raised again in newness of life three days later, and then ascends to the Father. God the Father at the resurrection and the ascension declares, yes, you will have the glory that you had before the world was. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. These two verses clearly teach us that we need to worship Jesus for what he has done, what he has accomplished on the earth, and for who he is. There's many implications here. One main application, the one main application that is the banner flying over these two verses is worship Jesus. But just as we wrap these two verses up, three questions. Just three questions as we conclude. The first question is this. What is your view of Jesus' work. What is your view of Jesus' work? We know the Father's view. The Father says, it's finished. It's satisfied. The resurrection is the Father declaring it is finished. At the cross, Jesus says, it's finished. I did it. It's accomplished. And then he is buried. And at the resurrection, the Father says, yes, it has been paid in full. Your, Your sacrifice satisfies my wrath. Sinners can be forgiven. The Father is satisfied. The Son is satisfied. The Spirit is satisfied. But what about you? So often we want Jesus to do something else to find our satisfaction in Him. You know, I I know that you love me because I know the cross proves you love me, but if you would just heal my friend, just heal my friend, if you would just give me success in my job, if you would just give me a, a child, if you would just give me a spouse, whatever it is, then I would really know that you love me. There's no greater gift that God the Father could give to us than his son. He did the hardest thing, Romans 8 tells us. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And if he did that, Paul's argument, from the greater to the lesser, well, then how will he not, with Jesus, freely give us all things? He did the hardest thing, he gave the greatest gift, and he is satisfied by that gift. Jesus is not sitting in heaven saying, you know what, if I had it to do over again, I would have done these things differently, you know, I wish I had another shot because I messed some things up, if only I had done this. Jesus knows there is nothing left to be added to his gift. So my question to my heart is, am I satisfied with God's display of love for me? The triune Godhead is. Am I? Or do I think that not only does Jesus need to add something to prove his love for me, but maybe I need to add something to prove my love for him. Maybe I need to add something. Maybe I need to add something to the gift. Maybe there's some aspect of work. You know, Jesus says it's finished at the cross, but, you know, I need to really try hard and be a good person, and then I can get to God. We talk about this question all the time. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? The majority of the world, their answer is, because I'm a good person, I'm better than so-and-so, I'm trying really hard. Jesus says clearly in Matthew 7, those who would say those things, I did these things in your name, I tried really hard, I'm working really hard. Jesus says, that's not the way to get to God. Your efforts don't work. That's what Jesus is saying. I did the work for you so that your efforts don't have to work. They don't have to be given. If I were to die tonight and stand before God and the Father were to ask me, why should I let you into heaven? My answer would be, you shouldn't. You shouldn't because of who I am. I'm a sinner. There's no reason I should be allowed into heaven. But you told me that you sent your Son and your son won for me a perfect standing. And I plead by the blood of Christ, not by my own goodness. I plead by God's goodness through his son, entrance into heaven by faith alone. That's the only way I can get into heaven, is by the work that your son did. If you're looking at me to try and get into heaven, looking at my good works, I have nothing to offer. So I stand in the righteousness of Christ, in his death, in his resurrection. And I place my faith in his finished work. What is your view of his finished work? What ingratitude, what foolishness to think that we can add to what Jesus accomplished. Second question, what's your view of your work? What is your view of your work? We have our view of Jesus' work and the implication of Jesus' work is he did it all. We can rest in his finished work. But it doesn't end there. Jesus says, I have accomplished everything that you gave me to do. The Father has given us work to accomplish as well. Not to be saved, but because we are saved and we are his slaves, we will do what he tells us to do. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is the will of the Father for us, for you and for me? It's not to earn a right standing before God. It's because we have been graciously given a right standing before God through the work that Jesus did. Now we encourage others to be a part of that. If we were to sum it all up, our job is to glorify God by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all things. That's the mission statement of our church. That's why we exist. That's the work that God the Father has given us to do. So, how are we doing in that work? Can we say with Jesus, I'm accomplishing that work? Often I hear people say, I just don't have time to do that. I don't have time to go share the gospel. I don't have time to make disciples. I don't have time. Jesus said, I'm going to make the time to accomplish the work that you've given me. And I think that if we are going to be disciples of Christ, we're going to say, you know what? What you have given to me to do, not to get saved, but because I am saved, I'm going to do with all my might, where you have placed me, at my workplace, in my home, in my neighborhood, in my community, at my church. We glorify God by accomplishing the work that he has given to do. So we rest in the work that Jesus did. We work hard in the work that the Father has given for us to do. And finally, as we wrap up, the third question, do you love Jesus for what he's done and for who he is? Do you worship Jesus for these two points, for what he has done for who he is? Do you worship him for what he has done? Because he has loved you so much, he willingly humbled himself, took upon humanity, died the death of a common criminal, bore our sin and shame. In our sin, we were hopeless apart from Christ, and yet he freely gave us his record of righteousness. He lived a life that was perfect and won for us. In every decision he made, he chose to obey so that he could give you and me perfect obedience. Do you worship him for what he has done? Do you worship him for who he is? He is God, very God. He is God sent from God. That's why we sing the song, O God of God, Charles Wesley says, O God of God, God sent from God, fully God. John Flavel says it this way, Christ is bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, a garment to the naked, healing to the wounded. All that a soul can desire is found in him. Do you find your hope, your rest, your satisfaction in him? Not perfectly. This is by no means, okay, I know who he is and now I perfectly love him more than anything in the world. No, that's why I love him, because I can't perfectly love the Father more than anything in the world. I need Jesus' perfect love for the Father in my account. And because of that, because he graciously gives me his righteousness and takes my sin upon his shoulders and does away with it, I love him because he first loved me. As I said, R.C. Thrall is now in glory. An amazing man of God, an amazing impact around the world. His last sermon was on November 26th, a month ago. And the last line in the last sermon that he ever preached is this, I pray with all my heart That God will awaken each one of us today to the sweetness, the loveliness, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for us as well. That God would awaken in us a desire for Him, a love that we would taste and see that He is glorious. As we come to the Christmas season, there are so many ways that we can look at the glory of Christ, who he is, what he has done. But one of my favorite ways of staring at the majesty of Christ is through sanctified imagination, thinking about what it would be like to hold God incarnate in your arms. I have two sons. I love them. They're so special. My students know that I scratch my head more often than not at the decisions that they make. I tell them constantly they'll just run into walls, they'll eat things that I don't know why you would think that's acceptable to eat. They're they're crazy, they're beautiful, they're lovely, they're amazing, they're children. And at one point in time, Jesus Christ was a baby. And not the kind of baby that we think of when we think of Jesus as a baby with the halo and glory and you know, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's a pathetic line in a song. That does not make any sense. Jesus is fully human. He totally made noise. He cried. He kept his mom and dad up as they're trying to get him to sleep. He did so without any aspect of disobedience whatsoever. But what would it be like to hold the God of the universe, the God that made me What would it be like to hold him? I think that that question is expressed very well, again, with sanctified imagination in this song, from Joseph's perspective, staring at his son, a little baby, only seconds old, the God of the universe. Father, we thank you for the majesty of Christmas. May we not lose. The, the majesty, the wonder, the glory that is incarnate in, Chris, in Christmas, that is here. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Even now as we listen to this song, raise our affections for Jesus. That we would love him now more than anything, more than anyone. And live the rest of our lives going back to our first love. Because he first loved us. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.